There's a term that affects and troubles governments, businesses, banks, and voters alike. That term is too big to fail. Presidents talk about it. Never again will the American taxpayer be held hostage by a bank that is too big to fail. Well, banks that were considered too big to fail, we've heard that many times, too big to fail. Books have been written about it. New York Times reporter Andrew Ross Sorkin has just published a new book, Too Big to Fail, the inside story of how Wall Street fought to save the financial system and themselves. In 2004, four years before a worldwide economic downturn, Gary co-authored the book, Too Big to Fail, The Hazards of Bank Bailouts. Movies have been made about it that there was enough value in all these insurance companies that we could take it as collateral. AIG may not have been too big to fail, but it was certainly too interconnected to the economy to fail. To simply hand over $700 billion. Nobody's going to go for it. You don't have options. If you want too big to fail, here it is. It comes up over and over again. A blueprint to get rid of too big to fail. We've now understood this problem for nearly five years. So when are we going to get rid of too big to fail? My name is Alexander Badgett. This is the Bankster Podcast Season 3, Last Resort, presented by Centralverse.org. Today is Episode 4, Too Big to Fail. Today's central banks have public missions. The lender of last resort is meant to prevent collapses in the system. Remember that when trust dries up, when markets tighten, the system is designed so that banks can come to the Fed for temporary relief until the panic subsides markets loosen and trust is restored. That said, sometimes the loss in trust happens because everyone is afraid that one single institution will fail, and with its failure, bring down all of them. On today's episode, we'll tell the story of two institutions that became too big to fail, got into trouble, and then reached out to the Fed for help. In our first example, the Fed opened its books in a pretty traditional lender of last resort capacity. The second example will illustrate a different approach the central bank can take to wrestle with a collapsing too-big-to-fail institution. But first, let's circle back to the phrase itself, too-big-to-fail. Where did it come from? Well, in 1913... The Honorable, the Chief Justice, and the Associate Justices of the Supreme Court of the United States. Oh, yay, oh, Chief yay. Justice Luis Brandeis denounced big banks as symptoms of what he called a curse of bigness. Now, besides a very small handful of references in obscure economic and legal textbooks, the idea is not really discussed. It wasn't until the 1970s that the actual phrase too big to fail was introduced to a wider audience. See, in the early 1970s, the country saw a spate of large companies failing and the government having to come in and rescue them. In 1970, it was $3.2 billion to a large railroad company called Penn Central. In 1971, it was $1.4 billion to the defense contractor Lockheed. 1974 was $7.8 billion to a New York bank called Franklin National. Heck, New York City itself required a $9.4 billion rescue from the federal government in 1975. The government didn't provide these funds uh, joyfully. However, the alternative seemed unimaginable to those in charge. So in a January 1975 issue of Business Week, the journalist John Cobbs coined the modern usage of the term in an article titled, When Companies Get Too Big to Fail. He defined the phrase to include 
quote, corporations that have become so important to the U.S. economy that the government does not dare let one go under, close quote. Now let's take a second to clarify and emphasize this definition. It doesn't mean a company that is literally too big. There's not a single company, or city for that matter, that couldn't technically go into bankruptcy or default. The key is that the term applies to institutions that the government or central bank decides they don't dare let go. Often, alternative phrases like too connected to fail or too important to fail are actually more appropriate. But for whatever reason, too big to fail is the one that stuck. However, if the Business Week article was the community theater introduction, Too Big to Fail's Broadway debut came in a congressional hearing in 1984. Congressman Stuart McKinney said the following, quote, I would also like to find out what the regulators feel they have done, number one, by creating a new class of bank in the United States of America, a TBTF, Too Big to Fail, close quote. The institution that sparked McKinney's concern was Continental Illinois, a large bank in Chicago located on LaSalle Street, tucked in sharing the corner with the Board of Trade and the Federal Reserve Bank of Chicago. For those unfamiliar with Chicago, this is the T-intersection where the funeral procession assassination takes place in the dark night. At the time, Continental Illinois was the seventh largest bank in the United States with $40 billion in assets and some incredibly weird TV ads. Just call Continental Illinois at 1-800-841-8000 for a loan application. And do it right now while there's a stupid commercial on. At this point, the banker has been handed a hula hoop and is dancing with it swinging around his neck. Continental was a very old bank, one of the oldest in the country. It traced its lineage clear back to the Civil War. During the 1970s and 80s, when our story takes place, the United States had some, what we would now consider strange, regulations that prevented banks from opening branches in other states. However, the regulations did not prevent banks from buying large amounts of loans from another state or even another country. Well, Continental did both of those. In part due to this strategy, Continental became the largest commercial and industrial lender in the United States. What that meant was that Continental was especially exposed to the areas where they bought the loans from. And unfortunately for Continental, in the early 80s, there were a series of market crashes in the very areas where they had purchased loans. Here are two quick examples. In the summer of 1982, an Oklahoma-based bank called Penn Square failed. According to a New York Times postmortem, the bank's goal had been to make quote, large amounts of energy-related loans, keep only a small part for itself, and sell the rest to other investors, mainly large banks elsewhere in the country, close quote. Continental Illinois had been one of those large banks, buying more than $1 billion worth. And one of the issues that we'll see again in later episodes about the Great Recession is that Continental didn't know much about the loans they were buying. Penn Square, as the postmortem continued, quote, would take care of all the technical details, such as deciding how much to lend, checking the creditworthiness of the borrower, determining what kind and how much collateral was required, safeguarding the collateral, and then collecting the payments, close quote. In addition, Penn Square promised to stand by the loans it sold. There was an implicit guarantee. To Continental Illinois, this sounded like easy money. However, 
the House of Oil loan cards did come crashing down. And when it did, Continental took a major hit for the losses on those loans they'd bought from Penn Square. It hurt, but it wasn't a mortal wound. So where the first example of being overexposed to one area or sector was the Midwest oil industry, the second example was international sovereign debt. On their international desk, Continental had invested heavily in emerging markets, which also took serious losses in 1982, when Mexico defaulted and failed to pay back investors who had bought their sovereign debt. Over the next 18 months or so, Continental attempted to stabilize their books and practices. However, these efforts were ultimately unsuccessful. In their first quarter of 1984, they reported that an astounding $2.3 billion of their loans had stopped making payments, which means they were non-performing in bank speak. That announcement caused waves in the financial market press. A few weeks later, on Thursday, May 10, 1984, the OCC made an unprecedented, and frankly a bit bizarre, statement saying that the rumors being floated by Japanese newspapers that Continental Illinois was in trouble were false. Uh, They weren't false, of course. A classic and serious bank run began. Now, but wait, what about deposit insurance that we talked about last time? Well, of the $28 billion in deposits... Over $20 billion was held above what the deposit insurance fund would cover. So the run was on that $20 billion of unprotected deposits. The very next day, the bank, unable to secure short-term funding to stay afloat, borrowed $3.6 billion from the Federal Reserve's discount window, which, remember, is the simplest and most straightforward form of lending of last resort from the central bank. Over the weekend, 16 of the nation's largest banks put together a rescue loan of $4.5 billion for Continental. But it just wasn't enough. The government was now becoming seriously concerned. 2,300 banks had invested in Continental, Illinois. It was sort of a bank for banks. Half of those banks had amounts invested above the insurance protection level and would lose their money if Continental failed. For nearly one in ten of those banks, the situation was even worse because they had invested half of their equity capital in Continental, which, to emphasize, would mean they'd nearly certainly fail if Continental failed. Hopefully you're beginning to see what too big to fail means on the ground, in real life. On Thursday, May 17th, the FDIC injected $1.5 billion in new capital to try to stem the bleeding. On Friday, the FDIC took the drastic and controversial measure of expanding the insurance fund to include all depositors, even if they had more than the official limit. In the end, the FDIC had to announce a permanent assistance and effectively take over the bank. The bank's stockholders were completely wiped out, but the depositors and bondholders were saved. It would take until 1991 before the government was able to completely exit its position in continental Illinois. Then, in 1994, what remained was sold to Bank of America. Throughout the crisis, the Federal Reserve played two major roles. First, as Chairman Paul Volcker later put it, the Fed opened the discount window to Continental, which Continental used heavily and frequently. Their second role was being involved in the discussions that were happening multiple times a day between Continental, the U.S. Treasury, the FDIC, and other regulators. 
The congressional hearing to investigate what happened with Continental Illinois was then the event that brought the term too big to fail into the full sunlight of the public lexicon. Just as the final pieces of that ill-fated Chicago bank were being picked up by Bank of America, 800 miles to the east, a hedge fund was born in Greenwich, Connecticut. This hedge fund would require a different type of intervention from the Fed. The name of this new hedge fund was Long-Term Capital Management, commonly known by its acronym LTCM. The fund was being built using principles invented by two of its Nobel Prize-winning founders. As one BBC documentary introduces it, This is the story of a brilliant scientific discovery, a beautiful and elegant mathematical formula which could do something no one had ever dreamt possible. But when its creators used the formula to make themselves rich, only then was its dark side revealed. Okay, quick time out. I think the narrator for this documentary just might be Galadriel, lady of the woods of Lothlorien and mightiest of elves. And nine, nine rings were gifted to the race of men who above all else desire power. Now that that wonderful collision of worlds has been noted, let's carry on. The two economists, Marin Scholes and Robert Merton, won their Nobel Prize for solving a financial markets puzzle, first theorized by a French student in the year 1900. The theory was that if you could find a mathematical formula for pricing options, you'd be able to remove risk itself from the markets. Let me give you a quick example to illustrate. Imagine you're the company Apple. It's January, and you know that you're going to start making new iPhones in June. You want to lock in prices right now for the glass that you won't actually buy until the summer manufacturing season begins. You can do that by purchasing an option. The puzzle is, how do you price it? How do you know how much the price is going to change between January and June? Economists, mathematicians, and statisticians tried for decades to crack the puzzle, adding and then removing dozens of different variables trying to accurately measure the risk. Nothing worked. Until Scholes, Merton, and Fisher Black, a third economist who passed away before the Nobel was given, cracked the code and solved the puzzle. In their final formula, the academics removed all of the variables that couldn't be directly measured. Except one, the risk. And that final piece was resolved by a new tool called dynamic hedging, which, using some cool trajectory calculus allows you to constantly protect yourself against negative moves in the price. Their formula was an immediate success. And literally, before the official publication of the model, traders had effectively started to program the model and begin to use it to trade. Their formula changed the way options were priced and quickly became common practice. However, it would be another 20 years before they themselves decided to put it into practice on a large scale. Or in their own words, first Merton, and then you'll hear Scholes. The idea of building something from scratch, but not a little prototype company, but something that would be quite large on a global basis, was too good to pass up. It was, for me, a way to... Uh, see the application of ideas to practice. 
or as one trader put it, It was as though the apostles had effectively come down to raise money to bingo pump. This was going to be the team of the century. Within months, they had raised $3 billion. In order to supercharge their potential return, they took that $3 billion and borrowed an additional $100 billion. Then, to protect themselves, I'm putting air quotes around protect, they used their sophisticated dynamic hedging models. You can think of the hedging as a kind of insurance. So the fund was safe because if their bets panned out, they'd sell and cash out. But if their bets crashed, they'd still get paid by the hedges. How did they do, you ask? Well, after the founders took a healthy cut for themselves, the people that had invested in LTCM earned 20% the first year, 43% the second, and 41% the third year. I ask them, what is it you guys are doing at LTCM? Myron uh, characterized it in that way of his. He said, well, you know, one way is to think of us as a gigantic vacuum cleaner sucking up nickels from all over the world. It was as though the world was behaving exactly the way it had been writ on the blackboard. Now this was an exceptional start to the fund. But if the fund kept growing and exceeding expectations, we wouldn't be featuring them in today's episode. So what went wrong? Well, it started with a recession 8,500 miles away. Taxi ride in Jakarta these days, and you begin the journey into the financial fiasco of Southeast Asia. Virtually unnoticed at the time, that would help ignite the Asian financial crisis. In the summer of 1997, across Thailand, property prices collapsed. This sparked a panic which swept through Asia. Banks went bust from Japan to Indonesia. Across East Asia, economies collapsed. The interest costs on dollar debts soared. Local stock prices plummeted. This crisis was LTCM's first true test. They hung on, but barely. See, here's where that portfolio stood in the summer of 1998. They had approximately $3 billion in capital, or money from investors. They'd borrowed $100 billion. And with that money, they had made bets worth $1 trillion. They had leveraged up to such a degree that even small losses on this massive portfolio were dangerous. The Asian financial crisis caused the first major losses on LTCM's books. But if the crisis across the seas brought them to the edge, it was something else that pushed them over it. In August 1998, something happened no one had considered possible. The biggest country in the world, suddenly and without explanation, refused to pay all its international debts. Here is William McDonough, president of the Federal Reserve Bank of New York at the time. Investors had decided Russia is an ex-superpower. It has lots of missiles and lots of atomic warheads for them. Certainly you could not have a financial accident in Russia because the rest of the world, the rich countries, would bail Russia out. Well, it turned out that that was wrong. The so-called ruble crisis hit Russia on August 17th of 1998. The failure of the Russian government to make their debt payments was dramatic and devastating. They began to lose 100 million and more day after day after day. Till finally there was one day 
when they dropped half a billion dollars, 500 million in a single day. And the agony just didn't end. In August alone, LTCM lost 44% of its value. Nearly half of its value went up in smoke. But the worst was still yet to come. On September 2nd, in a letter to investors that was leaked to the press, LTCM acknowledged the losses. LTCM's losses were spiraling out of control. Contagion had arrived on Wall Street. Incredibly, the failure of this single investment fund threatened the entire global economy. Suddenly they seem to be staring at this nightmare where one firm linked up to every major firm on Wall Street was going to be seized up and markets might just stop working. That was the great fear. In the midst of a crisis, and often on the edge of an impending crisis, the hardest thing a central bank or government has to deal with is an institution that has become so large that literally no one knows what would happen if it had to close its doors, failed to pay everyone it owes money to, and instead delivered collateral, which is who knows where and worth who knows how much. There's an immense amount of uncertainty and very little time to figure it all out. Now, at the moment you're listening to this, you may be standing in your kitchen washing dishes or out on your morning jog or even using this central banking podcast as a sleep aid. You may be asking yourself, So what if a big hedge fund and a bunch of big banks go down? Well, that is a fair and important question. But the answer is that the economy that would go down with it includes your job, your house, your retirement, your kids' education. All of that functions only when financial markets function. The financial system breathes breath into the economy. And without it, the economy suffocates. And that means your company suffers, your neighbor suffers. Collectively, as a society, we suffer. Here's how those two Nobel Prize-winning economists described their feelings as their fund, their idea put into practice, caved in on itself. It's like getting hit by a truck. Uh, I I can't imagine anyone wouldn't feel very deep uh, emotions of loss, of why, um, uh, and I'm no different from that. Some people have asked me how I felt going through the LTCM experience, and obviously I felt uh, quite bad, badly for, um, you know, investors, for others who had uh, worked with us, for uh, uh, generally because it was the case that we had a... uh, great idea and a great franchise, a great application of these ideas to problem solving and uh, uh, essentially realizing that that was very difficult to affect. So although the fund was collapsing and markets were panicking, LTCM hadn't yet lost everything. They were hanging on by a thread, but they were hanging on. If they were going to survive, they were going to need a serious and a large injection of capital. In plain speak, they needed cash. On Friday, September 18, 1998, LTCM officials made a call to the lender of last resort, the Federal Reserve Bank of New York. Now, hedge funds are not banks, which means that under normal circumstances, they wouldn't have access to the last resort money at the Fed. However, if you listened to the previous episode, you know that the Fed has the legal authority to make exceptions. 
On Sunday, September 20th, a team led by the New York Fed's number two piled into a Jeep and drove up the coast to Connecticut to assess the current damage and potential future damage in person at LTCM's office. What they found was not comforting. They were taking massive losses, like hundreds of millions of dollars a day massive losses. On Monday morning, Goldman Sachs, one of the largest investment banks on Wall Street, informed the Fed that they weren't having any luck finding a buyer for LTCM. No single institution wanted LTCM's portfolio because they would have had to close out many of the trades, and the other Wall Street firms knew that, so the competitors would also try and close out their similar trades, and the spiral would have continued downwards. In Sebastian Malaby's book, More Money Than God, he says, quote, the solution to this problem was for a consortium to purchase the portfolio. That way, each would get a piece that was small enough to hold and the hyenas would stop feeding. The hitch was that traditional rivalries among the main banks seemed to preclude such an alliance. Unless the Fed brokered one. Close quote. And that's exactly what they did. On Tuesday morning, the Fed invited four financial firms to their headquarters on Liberty Street in downtown Manhattan to brainstorm in groups, not unlike the meeting that J.P. Morgan organized 90 years previously. Here's Bill McDonough again, president of the New York Fed at the time. The head of a securities firm or a bank is not paid to be a patriot. He or she is paid to serve the best interests of the shareholders. So the most that one can do in a position like mine is to say the public interest may well be served by long-term capital management not failing. But there is no public sector money to solve the problem. The taxpayer is not going to do this. You folks have to decide whether it's in your interest to do it. By Tuesday evening, the group of banks and financial institutions invited in on the talks about the Wall Street rescue of LTCM was up to 13. However, they went home that night without a solution. They reconvened on Wednesday morning back at the New York Fed building. But there was a twist, a move that would have brought the similarities to the J.P. Morgan experience to an uncanny level. But I got this call on a Friday afternoon saying that things were really getting serious there. I'd had some... This is Warren Buffett, the Oracle of Omaha, and one of the richest people in the world. And uh, the place was imploding, and the Fed was sending people up that weekend. And so between that Friday and the following Wednesday, when the New York Fed, um, in effect, orchestrated a, a, a rescue effort, but without any federal money involved, uh, I was quite active, but I was having this terrible time. Despite being on a sailing ship with Bill Gates, weaving in and out along the Alaskan coastline, Buffett managed to put together an offer. Everything. It was really the outline of a bid, but uh, in the end, uh, it was a bid for $250 million essentially for the net assets. of. Uh, but we would have put in three and three quarters billion on top of that, and it would have been $3 billion from Berkshire Hathaway, $700 million from AIG, and $300 million from Goldman Sachs. McDonough, president of the New York Fed, encouraged LTCM to take the deal. But Buffett's Wednesday morning offer was only good until 12.30 p.m. that day. We submitted that, but we put a very short time fuse on it because when you're bidding on $100 billion worth of securities that are moving around, you don't want to leave a fixed price bid out there very long. Plus, we were worried about it getting shopped. So despite the encouragement to take Buffett's deal, the 12 o'clock hour came and went, and LTCM did not accept the offer. 
It was now up to the consortium of banks gathered at the New York Fed. And there were moments, very heated moments, where the Fed didn't think the banks were going to be able to come together. But they did. At 6 p.m., it was announced that LTCM had accepted the Fed-organized consortium's offer. For a $3.625 billion loan, they took 90% of the hedge fund. LTCM would go on to run the day-to-day operations, but employees were given no bonuses and salaries were limited. Also, the consortium formed an oversight committee that supervised the fund's actions. Over the following 15 months, LTCM unwound all of its trades, paid back the loan to the consortium of banks, and returned what money they could to their original investors. Those investors lost hundreds of millions of dollars, but major market disruptions and collapses were prevented, and LTCM did not bring down the system. This was an important move, and one that illustrates the power that the lender of last resort can have, even without putting up any of its actual last resort funds. From a Chicago bank with too many oil loans to a hedge fund run by Nobel laureates, Financial institutions have a way of growing in the shadows until they're so large that if they get sick, they infect the whole system, the regular economy, our economy. Historically, the Fed has taken different approaches to dealing with too-big-to-fail institutions. Today, we reviewed one case where the Fed's role was relatively simple, straightforward lender of last resort activity, open the discount window to a more complicated role as gatherer of potential rescuers. In the next episode, we deal with a different set of crises, terrorists and hurricanes. Today's episode was written, edited, and produced by me, Alexander Badgett. A full transcript with links to all of the sources used and quoted in today's episode can be found at www.centralverse.org. While you're there, check out the interactive graphics describing how modern central banks work today. The BBC documentary about LTCM is called Midas Formula, and I highly recommend the full thing. The theme song for this season is Land of the Retro Ones by Rage. I tweet under the name at Caleb Nygaard. Central banks affect the daily lives of all of us. Rate the podcast wherever you're listening, then share it with your coworkers, classmates, family, and friends. Until next time, thanks for listening. <laughs>